Every day it's like waking up to a battle no matter where we live. It's the 21st century, and other people don't understand the horror and instability Iranians face on a daily basis. You have stolen our peace for four decades. Return Iran to its people. Leave our people alone. I was walking in the streets of Tehran with my friends. I was arrested for wearing a V-neck t-shirt under my long coat. We had all been abducted by the morality police. More and more Iranian women are speaking out about life in Iran. The three we just heard shared their stories with our friends at the PBS NewsHour. In September, 22-year-old Masa Amini died while in police custody in Iran. She'd been detained by Iran's morality police for wearing, quote, an improper hijab. Her death sparked protests both inside and outside of her country. Women are burning their headscarves and cutting their hair. Oil workers are now on strike. And despite a crackdown by the Iranian authorities, the protests continue to grow. One human rights group now estimates more than 200 have died since the unrest started last month. After the break, we'll hear what life is like inside Iran for young Iranian women. We'll share your stories and ask whether the scale of the protests have pushed the country to a point of no return. I'm Nyla Budu of Axios Today, in for Jen White. You're listening to the 1A podcast where we get to the heart of the story. Remember to join us for future conversations. Download the 1A Vox Pop app and leave us a message. This message comes from NPR sponsor BetterHelp. Introducing Group Sessions, a new BetterHelp therapy offering currently in pilot testing. Therapist Joy Bergheimer shares how finding a community of people with shared experiences can help clients become more comfortable with therapy. For quite some time, we have not normalized mental wellness, and a lot of our families would shame you when you would say that you were feeling depressed or you're feeling overwhelmed. If you have been told over and over again that basically you have a character flaw, if you're seeking therapy, that's going to be a reason that people don't want to go seek therapy. But actually being in group with other people and hearing them say a story that feels like it came right out of your book is huge. Like, oh my gosh, this is not abnormal, right? And this person is further along in their journey than me. So now I know that therapy is something that can shift things for me. So really seeing their peers has been a huge shift for people accepting therapy for themselves. To get 10% off your first month of online therapy, go to BetterHelp.com slash 1A. Let's get into the conversation by welcoming our first guests. With me in studio is Nagar Mortazavi. She's an Iranian-American journalist based in Washington, D.C., a columnist for The Independent and host of the Iran podcast. Thanks for being here with me, Nagar. Thanks for having me. Also with us, Azada Moavani. Like Nagar, she's an Iranian-American who's just back from Tehran. She's an associate professor of journalism at New York University, and her guest essay about life inside Iran was published by the New York Times. Azada, thanks for being with us as well. Good to be with you. Nagar, you went to school in Iran as a young girl. From your perspective, what's behind the courage that's being shown by this current generation in these protests and standing up to authorities? Well, it's incredible seeing these scenes of, as you say, courage and bravery by women, young women, and now young girls. Um, and it's, I think, a culmination of years, if not decades, of discrimination against women that the most visible uh, 
symbol of it is the dress code. You have to uh, wear the mandatory hijab, observe the mandatory hijab since the age of seven, first grade. When you go to school as a little girl, I had to do it. All my classmates had to do it. And if you are not an observing um, person, a Muslim, it's 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 something that's being forced on you day after day, year after year, and it's just very discriminatory, intrusive, humiliating. And if you don't observe it well, you get punished for it. You can even get expelled from school. So it's been the culmination of these years and years when girls have also tried to push back uh, slowly. But I think with the death of Masa Amini and the spark across the country, you now see this outpouring of anger also at schools among the girls. And when you're saying girls, how young are these girls that we're seeing protesting? I think we're seeing a lot of high schoolers. That it's Sometimes it's difficult to tell the age, but they're teenagers, essentially children under 18. A lot of high schoolers booing or chanting radical slogans at their school officials. In some instances, government officials. The president of the country was at one school. He got booed. There was another government official. Um, and then school officials, they're confronting them. And some of the images we're seeing is girls actually leaving the school. So it's not just inside the school, but walking down the street, waving their scarves up in the air. And also what, another thing that's very incredible and speaks to the importance of social media is them filming themselves doing some of these very brave acts and then posting it online. That gives courage and inspiration to other girls to also join in. Asada, we'll mention this a few times, but it is hard to know exactly what's going on inside Iran. Uh, Some of the posts, as you mentioned, are getting out. Most Western reporters have been banned. You were there recently. Can you share with us what's the atmosphere inside Tehran? Um, It's really electric right now. Um, The the sort of broad solidarity and support um, for these protesters is is really striking. Um, I think seeing um, support for them out on the street, women in chador, this sort of traditional sort of black cloak, women who cover their hair also coming out to protest. So sort of seeing... Um, you know, this generation that Negar mentioned of young girls who are sort of Gen Z, they're very young and they're brave and they're uh, secular-minded and they're liberal, but there's a whole sort of sort of solidarity behind them from Iranians of other backgrounds, sort of cutting across class and age and piety and ethnicity. Um, So that was really striking to see. Um, And and then also I think, um, you know, in... In a lot of ways, in the last few years, these kind of controls on women's bodies and dress had had receded. Um, You know, it was uh, quite common to sit in a restaurant or a cafe in Tehran and, you know, just drop your headscarf down. Um, You know, I I wrote in my piece for the New York Times, you would see young girls with bare midriffs. Um, So also the sort of crackdown that, that we saw this past summer when President Raisi, the new president, took power uh, was sort of a, a, a revoking of a kind of, of a sort of de facto freedom that young women had become used to. So I think sort of outrage at that is, is also part of it. And is that freedom also different depending on what class you are? You wrote about this as well. It's, it's really selective the way that the morality police enforces these dress codes. It's both selective and arbitrary at the same time, which makes it insufferable. Um, you know, typically it's really heavy handed and has become more so under under this president at metro stations, 
transport hubs, bus stations, places where um, working class Iranians, um, the ex-middle class, because you know Iran is a is a society that's in sort of steep economic decline. These kind of transit points where people enter the city, where they encounter North Tehran. Um, but there are whole neighborhoods and areas where wealthy Iranians who are very privileged, who have made a lot of money um, in the last 40 years through their affiliations with the system, they live in lavish apartments and villas and, and you know, eat in really fancy restaurants. And those places are really not targeted by the morality police. And and young people see on Instagram the lifestyles of these privileged few. I think that fuels their indignation that, you know, why should the government have one sort of social contract with the privileged and then different rules for everyone else? We're speaking with Asada Moavni. She's the author of Guest House for Young Widows and Associate Professor of Journalism at New York University. And Nagar Mortazavi, a columnist for The Independent and host of the Iran podcast. Nagar, protest isn't unusual in Iran. We know how hard it and we know how hard the authorities come down on people who step out of line. We just got an email from a listener, Jay, asking what's different this time? I think what made this round very incredible to watch for many of us is that the spark was the death of a young woman, essentially a woman's rights issue. And we're seeing a lot of women leading at the forefront of these protests, the very iconic images of them waving the hijab or some even throwing it in bonfire, essentially signaling that enough is enough and they're not going back to to what was before. And um, But there's also an intersectionality of different demographics and different communities joining in We've seen university students. Now we're seeing uh, high schoolers. We've seen teachers joining in, lawyers, and just this week, oil workers. It's it's an uh, a combination of these various different communities who bring their own grievances to the mix that have been piling up over the years. There's underlying political, economic, social, cultural grievances, but there's also a lot of overlap among these um, various different communities and also very radical slogans. We're hearing very radical slogans that we have heard before at protests, but they're just getting louder and more vivid against the entirety of the system, senior elite, the Islamic Republic, and basically a lot of people on the street demanding an end to everything. And this it's showing that they're fed up and have had enough of not just the mandatory hijab or the morality police, but the entirety of the corrupt system that Azadeh was speaking to. Is there a thread to the grievances? As you said, is it all sort of united against the current government? It definitely is an anti-government movement, but I also think that at the core of it is also this feminist uprising that is not necessarily only directed at the government or religion. It's centuries of patriarchy. Some of these women are also revolting against their own communities, their own families that have been a part of this enforcement and this violence because it's not only the state that's been doing this, the state has also been doing it on behalf of of a certain uh, religious or more traditional uh, demographic in the country. So I think that the core of it is this feminist or this women's uprising, but then the bigger picture is also um, this intersectional revolt against the system and the entirety of the government. 
برای توی کوچه رخصیدن برای ترسیدن به وقت بوسیدن برای خواهرم خواهرت خواهرامون برای تغییر مغز ها که پوسیدن برای شرمندگی برای بیپولی برای حسرت یک زندگی معمولی برای کودک زبالگرد و آرزوها The song we're hearing has become a sort of soundtrack to the civil uprising. It's called By Year, meaning for or because of in Farsi. Its lyrics are taken entirely from messages that Iranians have posted online about why they're protesting, following the death of Masa Amini in police custody. Nigar, as we're listening to this song, can you tell us a little bit more about how this song has been meaningful to you and other people as they're listening? Sure. As you saw, I got a little bit emotional hearing that song. I was a music major myself um, years ago in Iran. I was a young student, and it just brought so many... Uh, memories and emotions, but it also speaks to the very ordinary demands that these young, this young generation has on the street. When you listen to the lyrics of the song, he's literally saying, because of this, because of that, because of this, because of that. And he's taken the lines of the lyrics from tweets, from tweets by ordinary young Iranians who are saying, I'm fighting because... I want a normal life. I'm fighting because of the schoolgirls. I'm fighting because of this almost extinct cheetah in, in Iran that is that is not being um, preserved well by by the authorities, Piruz, that's the name of the this little baby cheetah. And um it's it's also the fact that this musician, Shervin, was arrested after publishing this song also speaks to the level of paranoia by the state, assuming that they are, or not assuming, but basically showing that they're even scared of a, of a young musician who is going on Instagram, posting a song about wanting to preserve cheetahs and wanting to have a normal life and just speaking, basically, being the voice of his generation. Do we know what has happened to him? He's apparently been released, and he posted a video thanking everyone, but his account was inactive for a while, and I believe the video, the music video, was deleted from his account when he was arrested. There was also another story of a woman, a couple of young women, who went to a cafe in Tehran without their hijab and had breakfast, and they posted it on Twitter, and one of them was arrested too. So people are now speaking to authorities who are afraid of a woman having breakfast and are afraid of this young musician singing about a baby cheetah and wanting to have a normal life. As we've been hearing, there are heavy restrictions and also on independent and foreign reporting in the country, but we're looking forward to hearing from our next guest, who joins us from the city of Eshfahan in Iran. Satara Siddiqui is a political analyst and podcast host. She has a PhD in American Studies from the University of Tehran. Satara, welcome to 1A. Thank you for having me. You, what do you want our listeners to know about what's going on inside Iran right now? Well, I think uh, it's very important to know that while these uh, protests are very legitimate and people have been fed up with a lot of uh, uh, inequalities and problems that um, they've been going through for years, um, 
the reflection and the representation of these protests online, especially on social media and particularly on Twitter and Instagram, are very much exaggerated and not reflective of the realities on the ground. Um, and it's very surprising to me because in 2019, for example, we had widespread uh, protests and uh, uh, many people died uh, due to the crackdown on the protesters, even more than people, more people, a lot more people than have died this year. Uh, but we did not see anything similar online and there was not much solidarity coming from uh, or so-called solidarity, I would say, coming from um Western nations or um, celebrities or figures. Um, what is also uh, surprising to me is that uh, the hashtags concerning the uh, protest in Iran this year ha on Twitter have already surpassed uh, uh, 180 million, something around 200 million, and they have break uh, that have broken a record on Twitter. Um, like uh, Twitter's history, which uh, makes me wonder if this has been really the most pressing issue in a decade or more in the world. Uh, and it's, I mean, as an Iranian woman and as an Iranian citizen who is living uh, in Iran um, and has lived all my, I have lived all my life here and I have lived with these people, um, I find a lot of the support that comes or so-called solidarity that comes from other countries very hypocritical because while the U.S. Uh, unilateral measures against Iran are in place, while the san sanctions, the crippling sanctions are hurting ordinary Iranian women, nobody spoke against them. Or, I mean, at least we never heard such a, um, you know, wave of hashtags and on online campaigns against them. Uh, but we, are, we but everyone is um, hearing about the tragic death of uh, uh, a younger in police custody in Iran. Um, so I think that's very important. And another thing is that um, while there are many people who are protesting and while there are many people who sympathize with the protesters without taking part in the protest, there is also a large proportion of the population that does not agree with the, these protests going on. Thank you so much for sharing all of this with us because we certainly recognize that you could have chosen not to speak to us and we're really grateful that you are able to. It sounds like what you're saying is given the current climate, does this feel like a tipping point to you, especially for the thousands of Iranian women? Well, I think it was significant in some ways because uh, even well before, well before the death of uh, Mahsa Amini in police custody, there was an online campaign against the morality police, and I was part of it. But we, you know, naturally we uh, tweeted in Farsi in our language because we didn't, we wanted uh, our officials to hear that. We uh, and that, but that, uh, at that time, Instagram wasn't uh, um, blocked yet. Uh, so we took it online and we have been talking about it and we have been demanding it. But this tragic death made everything even worse and made a lot of us angry. Uh, I personally, am, uh, I mean, I observe the hijab, uh, but I'm I'm totally against morality police and um, which is like uh, in Farsi, the word is guidance patrol. But uh, anyways, so I was against it and I took part uh, in the online campaigns. And there are a lot of women inside Iran 
women who do not observe the hijab or observe the hijab, that uh, they understand the dynamics of uh, the Iranian society and how to deal with these issues. Because as also, as Negar also mentioned, uh, the issue is not only a governmental problem. Uh, it, it requires years of education. And a lot of women are actively educating the new generation and their families about women's rights and equality. And uh, these uh, protest, especially that because we live in a country where, uh, you know, we have been under sanctions, we have uh, had terrorist group active in the country backed by CIA and Mossad in uh, Saudi Arabia, and they are ready to take any opportunity to turn these uh, protests into violent uh, riots. And that only hurts ordinary people again. Uh, and it increases uh, the government's crackdown on the protesters. So we see other means and other channels, and we have been working on it for years. You know, um, more than 57% of university students in Iran are women. Women are active in all sectors, uh, and they still want more equality, more rights, and more recognition by the government, no matter uh, what, um, you know, religious beliefs they come from. We're speaking with Satara Siddiqui, a political analyst and podcast host. She's a Ph.D. in American Studies from the University of Tehran. Satara, thank you so much for your time. I wanted to pick up something that Satara was saying about uh, the idea that she wears uh, a hijab, but she's also protesting. Nagar, can you explain some of the nuances here? Sure. So I think this campaign that was discussed about Instagram, I saw the hashtag. It said, I am hijabi, but I oppose the morality police. And I find that significant, even though it wasn't a very big um, uh, campaign and wasn't much covered. But what's significant is that you're hearing even from religious Iranians this time around. You're hearing from religious women who are observing hijab. Uh, in the private of their home and opposing the morality police, basically signaling to the state that don't do this in my name. Don't do this in, in the name of my belief. Because what's ironic is that we've heard stories of religious women, of hijabi women who observe it in their own private, who go outside and also get harassed by the morality police. So it's become this very subjective enforcement of what the state deems as Islamic, which also has to do a lot with culture, with the local traditions. It's a very big country, very diverse culture. And also Muslims live from Indonesia all the way to Morocco. The way each woman and each community interprets modesty or hijab is just very different, let alone the ones who don't even believe in it and don't observe it. But this has gotten so widespread, the violence and the harassment, that it's even impacting hijabi women who then go on the street and are deemed not Muslim or Islamic enough the dress code by the morality police and then also the ones who are seeing it done to their own friends who don't observe the hijab and they're not okay with it. We're also hearing from some religious scholars who are speaking up against this from an Islamic scholarship viewpoint. There was a grand ayatollah Bayad Zanjani who's a critic of the government but nevertheless inside Iran a grand ayatollah who called this illegal uh, immoral and also un-Islamic, basically saying that an irrational. He said it's irrational because you're driving young people away from religion by using this violence. And also, no, he, he's saying nowhere in Islam, Muslims are directed to use this kind of violence to impose their own belief of the dress code on other people, including non-believers or other religions. Our conversation about the protests in Iran continues in a moment. Remember to connect with us. Tweet us at 1A.
Let's get back to today's conversation about the ongoing protests in Iran. Let's add one final voice to the conversation. Suzanne Maloney is a vice president and director of the foreign policy program at the Brookings Institution, author of many books on Iran, and also have spent two years working for the State Department. Suzanne, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. As someone who has made a long study of Iran and its people, I'm curious your thoughts on this moment and where this sits in the country's long struggle for more freedom. Look, I think that this is an incredibly significant moment um, for Iran and for the world. Um, What we're seeing is, I think, the uh, culmination and amalgamation of various strands of discontent that have manifested themselves in different ways over the course of the past 43 years. There have been protests in the past that have been led primarily by the middle and upper middle class, often demanding political rights, as in 2009, after the contested re-election of Mahmoud Ahmadinejad as president. There have also been many, many protests over economic grievances, and most recently, those have often turned violent and uh, expressed deep dissatisfaction with the regime through slogans that we're hearing today, like death to the dictator and death to the Islamic Republic. Um, What we're seeing over the course of the past month is really just the culmination of, of these various movements coming together around uh, a slogan and, and, a, and a manifesto, which I think is, is very much inimical, inimical to the continuation of the Islamic Republic. Uh, there may be economic grievances, uh, there may be many other grievances, but what Iranians are demanding on the streets, and there's clear evidence that this is happening around the country, the protests are small scale, they're not millions and millions of people, but they are persisting over the course of many weeks, and they're involving, as Azadeh said, uh, individuals from different parts of the country, different ethnic groups, different class backgrounds, and they're demanding an end to the Islamic Republic. And we've never seen a protest movement persist as long as this one has, despite the efforts to repress those on the streets. If anything, the demands seem to be growing louder. And the world is listening, the world is watching, and I think that's been clear. Azada, I wanted to just go back to get your reactions to what we heard from Satara inside Iran. What stood out to you? I think Satara really underlined the economic context that um, that sits behind these protests and how they have affected feminist activism, um, how sanctions on Iran, particularly U.S. sanctions that target um, Iran's ability to export its oil, um, how those sanctions have disempowered um, women's civil society. They've really eroded women's activists' ability to push for legal and political change inside Iran. Um, These protests are not at all about economic grievance, but I think, you know, when Satara talks about the way that they have gutted the quality of life of Iranians, the way that they get in the way of, um, you know, people being able to access medications, um, the way that they've reduced the incomes uh, of of Iranian families. I mean, this has a direct relation to women's ability to organize for their own um, internal struggle for for gender equality, you know, outside of protests. um, You know, women suffered job loss much more acutely than men. Their job losses after COVID um, have not been regained while men's have. Um, I've spoken to lots of activists, women's rights activists in Iran 
on who talk about how sanctions and the economic um, sort of freefall that they've brought about have have left them too exhausted to be able to to continue their activism. They're working three jobs, sometimes they're carers for family members. So they just have so much less energy, less time, less resources uh, to advance their their political work. Um, and, and I think that's a really important thing to highlight because while the solidarity for this protest movement is extraordinary, you know, we see celebrities cutting off their split ends. We see, um, you know, we see Balenciaga, um, you know, advocating for women's rights. But, you know, if there's one tangible thing that could relieve pressure on ordinary people in a way that would empower women specifically to take forward their work for more equality, it would be to roll back sanctions that directly affect them. So I think this is sort of, it's it's a very politicized point, but it's also at the very center of Iranian life in a way that impacts women. So I think that needs to sort of come into the question of, you know, what can be done. Thanks for bringing up that point, Asada. I do want to talk about the U.S. political side of this. There have been calls from both sides of the aisle for a more robust response from the U.S. One of those came from Republican Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas. He spoke to Fox News. This is a moment to stand with the people of Iran, both because they deserve freedom from these theocratic dictators and because it would be in America's interests if the Ayatollahs no longer governed Iran. Yet Joe Biden is doing in these protests exactly what Barack Obama did in the summer of 2009. He is standing idly by because he doesn't want to offend the Ayatollahs. What we should do is announce our support for them, impose new sanctions on those who are murdering innocent protesters in the streets, and to say that under no terms will we re-enter this nuclear deal. Suzanne, what response have we seen from the Biden administration to these protests? Thanks. I'd actually like to just speak to a couple of points that have been raised previously in the conversation. And first is just to point out that the guest that you brought in from Iran obviously is speaking um, from a country in which uh, providing an honest opinion on on uh, an American radio program may be uh, subject to reprisals. We had uh, a guest from Iran on a recent event that we had at Brookings, and he's since uh, been removed from his position teaching at a university. So I think we have to be very careful about understanding um, to the extent to which people are free to speak to Western reporters on air while sitting in Iran. The second point is the extent to which uh, hijab is a significant concern for Iranians and that is it, whether it is enforced significantly. We, statistics from 2014 show that 3 million Iranian women received warnings from the police and thousands were uh, protested and brought through the judicial system, uh, prosecuted and brought through the judicial system for bad hijab. So this is, this is a longstanding issue. It was the very first issue that Iranians came to the streets to protest after the departure of the Shah and the return of Ayatollah Khomeini in 1979. Thousands of women came to the streets of Tehran uh, on International Women's Day in March of 1979 to demand that there should be no compulsory hijab. And of course, that is exactly what the Islamic Republic did as part of a broader legal framework that enshrines gender discrimination. And so I think we have to be careful about attributing the real harm to women's economic fortunes and ability to mobilize. It has primarily been from the Islamic Republic and the legal framework. But let me speak to what the U.S. government has been doing, and I think it, it is notable. Um, what we've seen is um, a much greater 
willingness to speak out on behalf of Iranian protesters than in past periods of unrest. In 2009, the Obama administration was very reticent out of concerns for tainting uh, those who came to the streets to protest the rigged election of Mahmoud Ahmadinejad um, as Western-inspired or Western-orchestrated. I think there's been a sort of recognition that uh, that kind of a label will be used by the Iranian leadership against any indigenous effort to contest its power, irrespective of, of whether there are actually any connections to the West or whether there is any expression of support from the West. So I think what there has been is a, a greater willingness over time to, to, to speak out and to call attention and make it clear that this is going to have some implications for Iran's interactions with the re rest of the world. And that's just a plain and simple fact that the world is watching. The other thing that the uh, administration here in Washington and that other governments are doing is um, really trying to push on big tech, trying to find ways to um, find uh, manage the sanctions regime in a way that enables communications technology and internet access where possible. Obviously, the Iranian government has created a system in which they can shut down access to the to the broader global internet. Uh, while retaining their own domestic internet connectivity to avoid a complete economic shutdown. And that is a, a real danger point, something we have to watch for other governments. Um, and I just did want to add a note for our listeners as well that for the record, um, we did invite the State Department to take part in today's conversation. We were told no one was available. Um, we just have a few minutes left to wrap up this conversation. So, Asada, I just wanted to end by asking a look ahead. Like, I'd love to hear from you what you think uh, is likely to happen next here. What are you looking for in terms of moving the needle? It's um, it's the the most pressing question, of course. Um, I think we're really at um, a, a kind of precipice point. Um, the the system has shown that it's kind of uh, digging in. It's trying to muddle through as it, as it usually does, really refusing to acknowledge the anger that people are expressing, um, you know, avoiding taking accountability. Um, and, and I think that you know where this will go from from here is is really anyone's guess. But I think the the lack of response from the authorities just radicalizes people further. Um, people see no other way to communicate with the government apart from protesting uh, on the streets. So you know, two weeks ago, if someone had come out and apologized for Master Zemini's death and <clears throat> reversed uh, the state policies on dress code, that might have been extraordinarily powerful. But today, I don't think that would even be enough. Um, so, you know, where we go from here, um, you know, I think we see high schoolers sort of taking the lead uh, and, and everyone's watching them, uh, you know, in, in awe of their bravery and, and the state sort of looking on um, bewildered uh, and, and refusing to concede. So I think we're at a precipice moment. It is remarkable to watch. Uh, Nagar? I just want to speak also to the bravery of the journalists who are doing the heavy lifting of this work on the ground, starting with Nilufar Hamadi, this young female journalist who went to the hospital and tweeted a photo of Masa Amini's parents hugging, which was the initial sign that not all is okay with her. She was arrested afterwards. And her Twitter has actually been deactivated. And there's two dozen, more than two dozen journalists. The CPG is uh, documenting the arrests constantly. But I want to speak to some of the women. Yada Mayeri is a photojournalist. She was writing 
on Instagram from the van that was taking her to jail is under arrest. Other women, Fatima Rajabi, there's two sisters, Elahe Mohammadi and Elnaz Mohammadi, both have been arrested. Some of these women, these reporters, Vida Rabbani, also another a political commentator and journalist, all arrested. Some of these also work for state um, media organizations, but they have not, their work has not been tolerated and they're in detention. Thank you for sharing those names with us. My thanks to our guest, Nagar Mortazavi, an Iranian-American journalist based here in Washington, D.C. Asada Moabni, an author of The Guest House for Young Widows, and Suzanne Maloney, vice president and director of the Foreign Policy Program at the Brookings Institution. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Nyla Budu of Axios Today, in for Jen White. Let's talk more soon. This is 1A.